This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he's a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps, keeping the wolves at bay. The Sheepdog never questions why, it simply does its job with honor and vigilance. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces, our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. Now we are honored to serve them. Introducing Sheepdog Java. We're more than just a coffee company. Sure, our specialty blends will help folks like you create the finest cup of coffee you've tasted. But what's even more special is that we're partnering with American Valor Foundation through the Chris Kyle Memorial Benefit to help fund training and professional development for first responders nationwide. We know training budgets are tight. Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack. Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. I'm real excited today. We got Clark Fredericks back with us. Um, a lot of this is because, one, I'm friends with him now, and two, a lot of people asked to uh, have a follow-up with him. So he is here. We're going to sit down and we're going to talk a lot about what's going on uh, in his life today. We'll, we'll go over the story a little bit. But this was one of those episodes that we got so much feedback on because it was so raw. Clark just told his story. He let it rip, no, didn't hold back. And uh, people really responded to it. One of the things I found pretty interesting about it was how many victims of child sexual abuse were out there that actually reached out to us here at Under the Yellow Tape and thanked us for that episode and asked for uh, us to continue doing topics like that. And many people asked uh, Clark to come back. So Clark, man, thanks for coming in. My pleasure, buddy. And, uh, you know, I, I would never divulge uh, who, but I had people in law enforcement who heard uh, the first uh 
time we spoke together, uh, reached out to me and uh, talked about their own sexual abuse. And that that's what sort of drove them into law enforcement so they could make a difference. And uh, uh, it's, it's really... Uh, it really it makes everything I went through worthwhile when I whenever I do anything like this and I get people that reach out like that you know so uh, that was pretty special the first time around. Yeah, I uh, I remember when I when uh, we recorded it, we were done and um, it was edited and I get you know, obviously I always listen to them before we put them out and I sat there I was part of the conversation I sat there and listened to it, I was like wow that was like that was raw. Because uh, there was, you know, you showed the emotion, the intensity, everything, and and you and you told the whole story, which I think was really awesome. A lot of people won't do that, so it's all about. I know, I know, you're a big believer, and we'll talk about it today about helping other people and getting getting them to uh, open up. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the uh, buzzwords I use is break the silence, and uh, you know, I, I I was I was wrapped up in silence my whole life, and it it almost cost me my life, you know, and, uh, I don't, I don't have any problem with talking about the good, the bad and the ugly part of my life. You know, uh, I feel like I, you know, it feels like I lived like three, four different types of lives, you know? Um, well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Some of them I can't really recall too well. <laughs> when 25 year veteran police officers look at your life and go, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty impactful. <laughs> You know, well, I, you know, one of the things I think is really cool though, and I know, I know you get told this a lot and you probably hear this from a lot of people saying, you know, you know, thank you. You're helping others. Uh, I'm not sure people really truly understand how much you are helping other people. I mean, this is big. The fact that somebody went, that went through what you did and was involved in what you were involved with to come out, to be willing to sit down in open forums, in public speaking engagements on shows like this and tell the story with no holding back. It's just not something we see a lot of. And I think that's a big thing. And, you know, kudos to you for doing that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that, you know, part of my destruction was that I had no peer speaking out about this topic. You know, there, growing up, there was no agencies. No that treated child abuse. You know, the only ones that go to were law enforcement, you know? And uh, and there definitely wasn't podcasts when I was growing up, and right. there wasn't social media, and there wasn't, you know, uh, handheld uh, cell phones that you could instantly, you know, uh, connect with people around the world. So that's all changed, and it's allowed, you know, one of the, the things about being a sexual abuse victim is you feel alone. You feel like, nobody else will understand what you experienced. Sure. And uh, social media allows us all to connect. And uh, so I speak out just so people don't feel alone with the pain they're carrying. Yeah. That, and that's a great thing. Look, you and I are about the same age. And I, you know, yeah. I think we can both agree. Like when we were kids, you didn't really hear about this yet. I mean, you nah. didn't hear much about it at all. And if you did, it was so rare and such a sensationalized thing or, or it was just the opposite. It was kept under wraps. Right. And the other thing, you know, you growing up, me growing up, uh, we, we grew up in different parts of the state, but God, we'd go out in the street and play with our friends. You were down here, be home when the, when the street lights come on type oh. thing. And you can't do that anymore. No, unfortunately. We, we've let things kind of go and that's like, we've done episodes on some of this, you know, bail reform and all this other stuff, letting people out and the rate of recidivism is just out of control. But society has to take some responsibility in this because we've, 
we haven't given it the time or the play or the attention that it deserves. And I think uh, the way to get that done is the way you're doing it is getting your message out, which is actually pretty good. Why don't we go back just for some uh, people. We'll do like a, we'll step back real quick and go through the actual event. Um, and, but let's talk about your childhood and how you met this individual and how that all started. Right. Um, I grew up in the town we're in, you know, Stillwater. And, you know, it's a very rural part of New Jersey and uh, it's a lot of hunting, fishing. Uh, we have a ski resort in the county, snowmobiling, you know, everything was focused on outdoors. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a uh, ideal place as a kid to grow up, you know. But there, people with warped minds also picked up that it's a great place for children to be outdoors away from their parents. And it's a good place to, you know, be a uh, hunter of children, you know, especially back in the 70s and early 80s, you know. Um, so I grew up in this area. I had an older uh, brother who joined the uh, Boy Scouts and his scoutmaster befriended our family. And the scoutmaster's name was Dennis Pegg. Dennis Pegg was a uh, sheriff's deputy working at the county jail. He worked his way up before retirement to lieutenant. And my parents back then, when I was younger, owned a restaurant. My dad would put on these big Sunday night dinners. Dennis would always come over. You know, so my earliest recollections of him were, you know, like five years old, six years old. Um, and he, we had, you know, back then we had uh, some really good uh, hunting land. And Dennis always hunted with us. And Dennis came over for holidays. And Dennis liked to use the word mentor. He was a mentor to young boys. And he would spend hours, you know, I lived in a lake community called Paulskill Lake. And just like you were talking, be home when the, when the street lights came on, we had to be home at dinner time. So as soon as you could ride that bicycle, your parents said, be gone and be back at dinner time. So living at a, a lake community, um, all the kids would congregate down by the dam area because the jungle gyms were there, the baseball fields were there, the basketball courts, fishing, skipping rocks, just, you know, wading in the water. And so we spent all our time down at the lake, and that's where Dennis would – he used it as like his trolling ground, you know, and it was out of the watchful eye of my parents, you know, um, and he would spend hours down there. You know, he was slow and meticulous. That's not like, you know, he's rushing in to grab a young boy. This is a lifelong pursuit of his. And he had a 40 plus year reign of terror in our town. And he would spend hours down there with us, with not just me, with all the young boys fish, teaching us how to fish, how to cast, where to fish, how to catch. Um, and, you know, at an early age, you know, nine years old, he's inviting me into his pickup truck to split a six pack of beer. You know, uh, 
he's showing me uh, in his truck uh, Polaroid photos of, of close-ups of penises. You know, he's like, oh, my friend just bought a farmhouse and they left behind this old desk. And in the desk, it was all the drawers were filled with uh, porno pictures. Hop in my truck. I'll show you some of them. You know, you think you're going to see some, some boobs like in a Playboy magazine. And you get in the truck and he's like, here, look. And he's giggling, you know, like he's like he's trying feeling, to bring he's feeling you out. He's trying to bring his age down to your level, too. Like, yeah. like this is all a joke. And, you know, and it's just one penis after another close up. And, and he's I'm like, judging your reaction. The whole time. Right. And he's trying to make it comfortable and normal, you know, for guys to be looking at this. And he's probably the main thing is he's judging my reaction. Yeah. And I'm like. Where's all the women, Den? He's like, oh, those were in the other drawer. I just quick to grab a handful of pictures. I'll grab I'll grab some of those next time I go over there. Um, he was always taking trips out west. He went out west a lot, you know, like to the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and all those areas out there. And and you know, and one time he tells me. Back in the 70s, the most masculine, coolest dude was the Marlboro Man. He was on the back of every magazine, basically. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. And Dennis tells me that on one of his trips, he met the Marlboro Man. And they hung out for days and went out to dinners. And then Dennis has to throw in there, you know what the the, the funny part is, Clark? The Marlboro Man is gay. You know? And it didn't bother me at all. He was such a great guy. You know, I had no problem with it. Whether the Marlboro Man was gay or not, I have no idea. But Dennis is, is he's trying to normalize that behavior. Mm-hmm. And again, he's gauging my reaction. And he's just, you know, he's, he's you know, so he's, he's introducing alcohol. Now he's introducing pornography. Now he's introducing homosexual relationships. And, you know, he... He, you know, he, he, he's grooming, he's grooming. This is all part yeah. of the grooming process and he's methodical. There, there's how much during this entire thing was he always adamant about you keeping it a secret? Well, oh uh, yeah. Well, that, that's the problem. Um, and this is something parents, everybody out there that's listening to this, you know, we talked about this in a second when you got to listen to this again, because the, the grooming, uh, the, what they do, these child predators, they groom your children. And Clark is basically right now giving his personal experience, which happens to be a textbook example of a professional child predator grooming his victim. Right. Um, Well, let's go back to the very first instance that I can recall of grooming. I was born with a hole in my heart and the doctors monitored me until I was, you know, age six. And they told my parents... Clark's hole in his heart has grown to the size of a silver dollar. We have a six-month window where we have to operate. And you're going back to 1971. You know, this was a major, major life or death surgery. Right. And so I was seven years old a few months into my seventh year when I had the surgery. And I was left, I have keloid condition where my scars are raised up. So I was left with a raised up scar going down my chest. And my parents were so proud of me for surviving this operation that they used to have me show my scar, which they called my zipper, because you know the the, yeah. the stitches going across look made it look like a zipper. You know, so it's 
it's almost like I'm doing a peep show for their friends, you know, yeah. looking back at it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm lifting up my shirt and, and everybody would have to pay me a quarter. And one of those people was obviously Dennis Pegg. So this is about, I think I had the surgery in April of 1971. And so now it's that summer. So you're talking three months later, maybe after the surgery. And Dennis came to our house. We, we had a big backyard. We had a bar out, screened in bar, porch, patio. And I came inside. Everybody was out back. And I came inside to get a, a, a drink, an iced tea. And I sat down and I watched TV for a minute. And it was right next to our front door, the den was. And there's a knock on the door. And it's Dennis's booming voice. And I hop out of my chair and opened the door and he's like, Hey little buddy, where is everybody? And I'm like, Oh, they're all out back. I just came inside for a drink real quick. He's like, Oh, let's sit down for a minute. So we go and sit in the den and he's, you know, we're chit chatting for a minute and he's like, Hey, I got a quarter. How about I see your scar? I'm like, sure. Den. So he gives me the quarter and I lift my shirt and he goes this time. He goes, I've never seen a scar. So raised up like yours. How about I give you a dollar if you let me touch it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And as I've made mention, next to my father, Dennis is who I trusted most, you know? And I, I had no reason in my little seven-year-old mind to think there was anything nefarious going on. Sure. So I'm like, sure, Den. So <clears throat> I got my shirt up to my chin, and Dennis takes his two big meaty fingers, and he's running up and down my scar. And then he goes below my scar line, below my belly button, right around my pant line. And he's pushing in on my abdomen. And he's like, is your stomach sore from the surgery? Does this hurt at all? And I'm like, no, Den. And he's pushing and he's like feeling around down there. He's like, okay. He goes, here's your dollar. He's like, look, little buddy. He goes, this has to be our secret. Yeah. He goes, if you can't keep a secret, we can't be friends. He goes, you can't tell anybody that I just touched your scar. That's just between you and me. If we're going to be good friends, you can't, you can't, you know, reveal secrets that friends are supposed to keep between them. And I'm like, I can keep a secret then. He's like, all right, here's your dollar. Go put it in your piggy bank. I'm going out back to see everybody. And he's got me now. Oh, yeah. Boom. He, he, he's got my silence. And he's got my trust. And from there... The other things I just mentioned, that splitting a six-pack at nine, this you could get me in a lot of trouble if you told anybody about you know me giving you beer. This has to be our secret. Of course, Den, showing me those photos. You know, you can't tell anybody I showed you pornography. I could get in trouble for that. That's just between you and I. If we're going to be buddies, remember, you got to keep secrets. I can keep secret, Den. Yeah. The Marlboro Man, that had to be a secret. Yeah. Everything from that encounter at seven touching the scar seemed like it was a secret to be kept because he introduced the secrecy component right away yeah. and that, you know for the parents out there that's one one of the things that <clears throat> we we want to drive home there's nobody outside your family nobody really in your family that should be ever telling children to keep secrets you know i i say that in my speeches i'm like and even even one parent against the other, right. sh you sh there should never be an instance where you're telling a child to keep a secret. Right. Never. Yeah. It always has a it always has a something bad behind it. And in your case, it was the worst case scenario. But he's uh, 
I mean, he he's, this is not by accident. And I think that's the other thing people need to understand. This isn't, this isn't a one-off. And most child predators are not a one-off. This isn't like he just found you one day and said, wow, you know, I'm going to do this just to him. So yeah. he's the, the grooming ground, the hunting grounds. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, where we are right now or not, is not really geographically far from where his home was. Right. His home was perched atop a hill looking down over a schoolyard. Right. So, I mean, he, everything he did seemed to have a plan. You know, I, I went to the Stiller, Stillwater Elementary School. Yeah. And all my little league baseball games, guess who's at them? Yeah. You know, he's down there at all the little league games, you know? Cheering you on. That's his hunting ground. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, so those secrets were leading up to something. Yeah. You know? And... It turned, went, you know, it took a turn into wrestling matches where now recalling back, he obviously was erect as he's wrestling me. Mm -hmm. Then it led to him performing oral sex on me. And then it led to my rape at age 12. 12. Yeah. And uh, how did, let me ask you this, if you don't mind talking about it. <clears throat> and I know you pretty well. We, we talk about this just all the time. Right. After that day, it was in his home. Yeah. After that, what was his, and I'm, I'm asking you this question because people need to understand what kids may encounter with somebody like this. When I, when I mean after, I mean immediately after that episode was done, that event was done, the attack, and then thereafter. Take us from like when it was over. You going home or did he drive you home or? Well, he had picked me up down at the lake. You know, like I said, down yeah. at the dam area. You know, and driving over here today with the producer, we went down by the dam area right. and I showed her this was the, his trolling ground. And a lot of times what Dennis did was he'd be like, oh, the fish aren't biting down here. Let's go over to the bridge by the grist mill in Stillwater, which is right near his house. Let's go over there and try there instead. And And when we would get over there, he would inadvertently always slip into the water. Ah, let's, let's, let's hop in the truck and go up to my house so I can change my stickers. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So Everything had a plan. Yeah, so he's always falling into the water over here. And it was up to his house. And it's to get me comfortable, I think, to being up at his house. But when we'd go to his house, he'd always give me a Budweiser beer. So... Immediately, how he, uh, you know, a grown man, a lieutenant in the sheriff's department, a hulking. Dennis was a hulking guy. Yeah, he was a big guy. He yeah. was a 265 pound big dude. Is raping a little tiny, skinny 12 year old boy with an open heart surgery scar on him. Yeah. I'm screaming. I'm crying. Dennis's reply as he's behind me, has me in a bear hug, his reply is just another minute. Yeah. So that he could make when, sure he finished himself. When off. you told me that, I swear to God, man, I, I, I'm, I, I like to consider myself a semi-normal human being, right? <laughs> when I heard, when you first told me that, and this is not the first time I've heard in this part, uh, 
I got, I, I literally at that moment, years later, case over, you've been in and out of jail and the whole thing. We're sitting here having, having breakfast one day and you told me that I got angry as hell because yeah. I started thinking about that moment, like putting, almost trying to put myself in your shoes, which you can't do. And that's something people need to understand. We can em have empathy. We can try to understand there. We can actually never put ourselves in the shoes of a child sexual abuse victim because it's just so horrific. But to hear what he said, that did something. Yeah. You know, you can try to visualize the action, but then you hear the words. That's just, dude, that pissed uh, me off. You know, I, and, and just another, just, just, it still, it still gets me. Oh my God. You know, it's me. Uh, you know, I'm able to talk about it with you, but yeah, that's I, just, that's you know, so animalistic. Uh, it's so barbaric. Yeah, every day. It's like, uh, you know, and I'm reliving that right now yeah, as I talk about it. I'm sure you are. It. And I wish Dennis was here right now in front of me. Yeah. I, you know? I had a recurring dream throughout the years of I'm on that bed. Dennis has me in that bear hug. He's about to rape me. And the grown-up Clark bursts through his door and rescues the little Clark and pummels Dennis. That was a recurring dream I had. Um, and part of the Part of the mental anguish over the years is that, you know, you become a grown adult and yet you still have this 12 year old boy living in you and the grown you, the grown up you would never, ever allow that to happen. And yet the vulnerable 12 year old couldn't do anything about it. And it just messes with your mind. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, cause it, it where you are at now in life. It, it would never happen. Sure. And yet you're reliving it constantly in your mind. You think back about how vulnerable you are. I mean, really defenseless and vulnerable. And, 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 but, but when I hear the story, what I really hear is what an absolute animal, literally like a savage animal he was. And the fact that he, um, was so meticulous and so systematic and methodical in his, in his hunt. It's like, a, it's like a skilled hunter going out in the woods. He knows what he's doing, where he's doing it, why he's doing it, and how he's going to do it. You know, like you think about hunting. They approach downwind or upwind or whatever. And, you know, they move this way. It, it's the same thing. It's just a predatorial kind of savage thing he's doing with the ultimate result being one of the most horrific things society can see. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and, and I, I can't tell you how many horror stories I've heard since mm. I've come out as a speaker, since I've worked as an advocate in changing the law in New Jersey and all the stories I had to hear from the other advocates. And, you know, yes, there's some that are just like, you know, touching yeah. molestation and then others are equally as horrific as mine, yeah. you know, and these, these people have lost their humanity. Oh. To me, they're not, they're not human. Yeah. You know, people ask me, you know, how could you go Killed Dennis Peck. Now, I didn't view him as human anymore. You know, when you start raping little boys <laughs> and and that little boy is screaming in pain and fear and you whisper in his ear just another minute so you can make sure you finish your dirty deed, you're not a you're not a human anymore, no, bro. No. You know? And he doesn't view And whatever you. happens to you, it happens to you. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, uh I'm gonna get into our first interaction again. We'll we'll, we'll go over that real quick too, because I I literally kind of thought the same thing i you know when i when i looked at you in there uh right it, it brought it all around for me 
Talk a little you know, bit. Go ahead. You know, you, you wanted to know the immediate aftermath. Yeah, yeah. I'm you sorry, know, yeah. To finish off that part of the story, though, we, we really got to tell what happened immediately after the rape. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what you I know, meant. You yep. know, immediately after the rape, he sets me at his, you know, cleans up in the bedroom, sets me down at his kitchen table, gives me another Budweiser. He had a coon dog. Oh, and yeah. coon dogs have... <laughs> Coon dogs have this long, drawn-out howl. Dennis used to take his coon dog into the county jail to show his co-workers his dog, you know, like Mr. Mr. Animal Friendly. Well, his dog started howling at my cries and screams and wouldn't stop. And Dennis went and got his dog and brought the dog in front of me at the kitchen table and said, I want to show you what happens when you open your mouth, Clark. And he beat his dog unconscious in front of me. And Dude, this I'm, is like a terrorist, man. He, is- I am crying and screaming and begging for him to stop. At that moment, that was so much worse than the rape to me. Yeah. Because I was responsible for that dog getting beat because of my screams. And immediately after that aftermath is what really like traumatized me. You know, like uh, like the rape isn't bad enough, but but that dog getting beat unconscious in front of me was horrific to me at that age. Um, and, and Dennis, like, you open your mouth about ha- what happened in here, that's what's going to happen to you. So he turned it now to, there was his sexual violence, and then there was the threat of actual physical, I'll he, beat you to He's got to ensure my silence. Yeah. He, he most certainly did. Yeah. So my, my bicycle's in the back of his truck. We hop in his truck. He drives me back to the Ponska Lake Dam. The dam area is where all the kids congregated. I didn't want to be anywhere near anybody at that moment. So I took my bike out and I went across the ball field. From the dam, the Ponska River started. Mm -hmm. And I pushed my bike across the ball field. I ditched it in the weeds and I ran down the river a ways. And I just was like holding, hugging myself rocking back and forth along the river, like just trying to comprehend what all just transpired. And my mind said to me, um, you know, and and it's like locked in my PTSD at that moment. My mind said, talking about this is equal to reliving it. We're not ever going to bring this up. We're just going to bury it down and forget this ever happened. At 12 years old, that was the instantaneous thought I had. And that's what I tried to do. And uh, I tried to go live, uh, you know, a normal life. And yet I found myself going down dead end streets, sabotaging every career, sabotaging every romance, just uh, self-destructing throughout my whole life. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's the thing I want people to try to try to consider when they listen to this is a 12-year-old kid having to relive or live with that and watching a dog get beaten, watching the whole thing, having the whole thing happen to him in the first place, and then having to try to go to school the next day or hang out with his friends the next day like nothing ever happened. Right. Like, it's just, you know, it was normal. Right. You know, as parents, as adults, our responsibility, or one of our responsibilities, is to protect children. And, uh, you know, when when things like this happen, or, or when people like Dennis Pegg do get caught and and get criminally charged the society as a whole has to look at this very seriously this is something that exists your story 
as as horrible as it is, unfortunately, it's not the only one. No. And uh, and it's not a U.S. thing. It's not a a, a a Stillwater thing. It's it's a global problem. It happens, and you know when we have the chance to do something about it, we as a society have to we have to do the right thing about it. And it's just a God, man. It's just a, it's you know in all the years of, of, in law enforcement, and even now doing all these consulting cases all over the world, anything related to a child is the thing. Every almost every cop will tell you the same thing. Anything dealing with a child is the thing that affects us most because they're defenseless. Right. Even at 7, 10, 12, you're still defenseless. You're impressionable. You're defenseless. You're scared. You don't know what the whole sexual component of this is at that age. And you know it's wrong, but you're like, you know, later on you process what it is. We have to be the ones to stick up for the, for the, for the kids. And, man, if we don't, uh, and it's you, just And you know, you know well, go, what, go the, what the largest segment of the population that's befriended me is the law enforcement community because you guys we see it you understand the ptsd i suffered you've seen this type of case you've seen the horror of it you so you know what i'm suffering with what i went through and then you can understand what the end result became (laughs) you know know? it's funny you say that the, the last part you understand what the end result Okay, we're going to, obviously, if you listen to episode two, you know what happened. Uh, Dennis was, he was killed. Uh, and I, I'll get into that in a minute of, of the reaction there. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Everybody there, everybody saw it and said, I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked. We failed. System failed. So right. we'll get to that in a second. The night of, I mean, in the, in the last episode, we talked a lot about your your lifestyle leading up, <laughs> which was just in and of itself a three-hour podcast of like, yeah, holy I mean, shit. We might have to do a third one just on my, my, t- my 20s and 30s I'll and 40s. I'll title it, holy shit, I think, is, <laughs> I think is how we'll do it. But um, as you see that downhill slide with you, you can kind of see that this was this train was coming around a sharp end. It was coming off the track somewhere along right, the way. Right, 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 right. So, there wasn't going to be a good ending. No. No matter how it No, happened, you, know, you know. And it probably would have, it would have ended with me like doing a drug overdose. Yeah, or something. something especially nowadays, right? I mean, if you kept going uh, with fentanyl, fentanyl and all this other shit going on. Uh, so, so just so we catch up real quick before we move on, take us to the day you saw him again as an adult. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Bring us. You know, to I was working uh, in a tire automotive uh, business with my brother. We, you know, we had uh, two tire automotive shops, and uh, after work on a Saturday, I'm I'm in a deli uh, getting a coffee. And in a quick check deli. And uh, I'm, I'm like making my coffee at the island and the front door opens up and I, I, I look up and it's my rapist, my abuser, Dennis Pegg. And he sees me and he yells out, hey, Clark, you know, like we're best buddies. What was your inner feeling? Inner feeling, instant panic attack is like brewing instantly, you know, like everything tightened up with tightened up in me and even now let's see i think this is important for people on there even now as a yeah. grown man you could probably walk over and punch the shit out of him but but he still had that control he over had that you. control over me. yeah just that's, seeing that's him. scary yeah it sucks dude um and uh you know look it's a small town had i ever seen dennis before that day yes it would probably been about 10 years since i'd crossed paths with him 
Um, but what was different this day is that trailing in right behind him through that door was a boy around the age he raped me at. And that boy, I heard him say the nickname that Dennis used to insist I call him. And then boom, that was it. I was in full-blown panic mode. I had, You're witnessing the beginning of a rewind of what happened to you, probably. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing young Clark. Has he been raped already? Is he, What part of the grooming process is this kid in? God damn. And I, before I could go into a full-blown panic attack where I can't breathe and I can't move, I run out of there. I run out of there. I run past Dennis. You know, he wants to, like, hug and shake hands. Like your buddies. Yeah. And I, and I fly by him. I hop in my truck. I speed away, and my life collapsed after that. You know, it just, everything I had buried for 30 years is now ripped open. Mm -hmm. You know, I compartmentalized it. Yes, I sabotaged everything. Yes, I self-destructed. Yes, I went down one dead-end street after another. But I was still functioning with all that, and now all that pain and emotion and hurt is now ripped open and and pouring out of me fresh and raw all yeah. over again yeah now the night yep <laughs> is that how is that is that how we're like the night <laughs> well, we'll call it the night. <laughs> the night the night maybe well, i should maybe i should title my book that the night <laughs> well yeah i mean you could certainly one of the chapters you could yeah that's definitely a chapter so the night of you are you're out <laughs> tell sugar coat what am i doing <laughs> yeah well you tell us what you were doing go ahead i had woke up after a three day i'd been on a three-day coke bender and I, I passed out for maybe two hours or so you know and uh i woke up and i had to pee real bad i did a big line of coke went to the bathroom poured a uh, glass of wine <laughs> came back into the bed put on the news and it's the start of the Jerry Sandusky molestation trial out at Penn State. Jerry right. Sandusky sure. was one of the coaches running a boys camp, molesting mm -hmm. all the boys. And I saw him on the TV. I started spitting in my bedroom on the floor. I started cursing. I got my arms wrapped around myself, hugging myself again, just rocking back and forth in, in, in bed. And... uh it just looked like my abuser. He, he exemplified my abuser. And the difference was my abuser was never going to be held accountable. You know, I felt because he was a law enforcement guy, he was getting a free pass. People were looking the other way. And I had a friend uh, who, who had texted me about going out to lunch that day. At this point, I'm like, I'm not working. I After I saw Dennis in the deli that day, Within a month, I walked out of the family business. I couldn't. I couldn't go to work anymore. Uh, I was just too distraught. Um, and I fell into into the funnel of drugs and alcohol. You fell in, but you dove in. Well, I well, yeah, I dove head first, and I had a <laughs> weight a, belt on me that, a, that pulled me those, down. Yeah, quick. you did one of those triple Lindys <laughs> off the high board into that shit. Come on, let's be honest. You know, you know, I. I I posted, you know, uh, <laughs> online uh, about my all the drugs I was taking, and I had somebody 
post, you're doing you're doing addicts a disservice because they'll think they'll be able to do all the drugs you did and still stay alive. The normal person should have been dead from that. And you say, I'm sorry, I was a varsity player. What can I tell you? <laughs> like, like I, by the grace of God, I, I wasn't That's dead. For sure. You know, yeah. um, and I, I had I had a friend of mine who who knew me and he responded like, if anything, Clark is underestimating the amount of drugs he was doing. <laughs> wow. There's a wingman for you. Yeah. <laughs> he shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, dude, uh, um, I had a herniated disc. I, I uh, A doctor prescribed pain pills. I had never taken a pain pill. I, I, I ate 30 pain pills in a couple of days and felt like Superman on them. So when he wouldn't prescribe anymore, I just, you know, I, I, I knew people on the street I'm getting Coke from and, and Xanax from. So now I, I'm getting hundreds of pain pills off the street. And uh, when pain pills run low, it's an opiate, you know. Uh, you look for the alternative. You look, you, you don't want to go through, through withdrawal. And when somebody says, well, I got this little baggie of heroin, it's a hell of a lot cheaper than pain pills. You're like, all right. So one thing from age 12 when the rape happened till till now in my 40s is that boundaries in my life meant nothing. I couldn't keep a boundary. You know like whatever a bound you know we all set things how we want to live and I would blow right through those boundaries. Obviously, one of the boundaries, I'm a college-educated kid. I went to Northeastern University up in Boston. It's a, you know, an excellent school. I, had a, I graduated with honors. And you know, one of the things I'll never, ever, ever do, Howie, is heroin. Uh, you know, that's, that's for the, the low-class people, you know, the, the, the homeless people, the junkies. Yeah, well, that's bullshit. You know, uh, drugs lure you in. With, with false promises, you know, like we'll take all your, your, your problems away. And, and they do like mm-hmm. the problem with drugs is that they actually work, you know, oh, yeah. until they get your, their claws in you. Yeah. And I want to remind me, cause I want to hear, I want you to go through the rest of this. Remind me to come back to that for me and my personal experience going through what I went through. I want to talk about that in you and the impact you had. So go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm doing, you know, at the end, I'm doing three to five grams of Coke a day. I'm taking 10 Xanax a day, trying to balance it all out. Um, pain pills, I had built up such a time. You know, I remember hearing Rush Limbaugh. They talk about Rush Limbaugh when he, he had back surgery and developed mm-hmm. a pain pill addiction. Sure. And he was taking 40 pain pills. And it seemed like so, so far out there, like that can't be real. Well, it was real, you know. Depending on the strength of the pain pill I would get, I, w- I was taking anywhere from a dozen to 25 a day. And what were they? Uh, like you know, Oxycontins, uh, oh. you know, uh, the yellow banana Percocets, 10 milligram ones. Those are the, the popular. Yellow banana, folks. That's the yellow bananas chapter. everybody wanted because you could crush them up and snort them. Like oh. they, they put a uh, agent in Oxycontins where you couldn't snort it. You know, it was cakey. So everybody wanted yellow bananas. <laughs> so the yellow bananas. Yeah. That's chapter seven. <laughs> yellow um, so uh, and then and then I started doing heroin. Now, so I'm doing all this. Now, were you stuff. snorting heroin or were you? Did yeah, you yeah, yeah. It I didn't inject it. You know that another boundary, Howie. You know, <laughs> I'll never, 
I'll never inject heroin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was coming right around the corner, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm doing all that stuff uh, leading into the night, uh, the night, you know, night. of uh, Dennis Pegg's death. And you met up with somebody. And do you want, before we go into yeah. the night of uh, what happened, you wanted me to come back to, yeah, to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll come pain. back. I'm going to come back to it a little later. Later on? Yeah, okay. Yeah, because yeah. I want to I take it through the night here. All right. So uh, I spent the day out with my buddy and a, two other people, you know, uh, having lunch, drinking. I would sneak my Coke. You know, I got to go make a phone call, you know, and, and do a couple key hits of uh, cocaine, pop a Xanax, go back in the bar. And, uh, you know, I had a friend I had lent money to. And to pay off the money, he was going to power wash and stain the cedar siding of my house. And he was meeting at me at my house that night to drop all the equipment off. And prior to me meeting him, I ran into a guy I had a failed business deal on. And the guy burned me, you know, for like 50 grand. And I ran into him and I had words with him. And when I got to my house and met my buddy, we're having a glass of wine. And I'm telling him about seeing this guy. And my buddy says to me, that guy's got to be number one on your hit list. And for whatever reason, Howie, this secret I guarded with my life for 30 years, it just came out of me. I was so exhausted from lack of sleep. I was so beat down from all the drugs. I'm high, I'm drunk. And before I could stop the words, I say to him, Actually, he's number two on my hit list. The piece of shit who who raped me as a child is number one. And there, it's out. And my friend's looking at me cross-eyed like... I would have too. Yeah. He's like, are you for real, bro? You know, because... You know, we were, we were Harley buddies. We were strip club buddies. We were party buddies. And people ask me, why did you never, like, uh, tell anybody? And I'm like, all right, picture this. You're you're with you're with a group of twelve guys on Harleys. You pull into a strip club, in the parking lot. As you get off your bike, you reach into your pocket. You get a key out with a baggie of cocaine. You do a couple bumps, and as you're walking now into the strip club, you're supposed to just stop. And say, hey guys, uh, by the way, you know I was raped by my Boy Scout leader at age twelve. Mm. It, it just it never seemed like a, a a right time to bring it out. No, and. And, you know, like with, with my girlfriends over the years, like even, even one girl I went to couples therapy with, and she had been molested. And you still never. And I still wouldn't. Because you want to be that cool. You want to be the cool boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the damaged, broken little bird with a broken wing. Right, right. You know, you want to be the cool party animal boyfriend. Yeah. And uh, so I was locked in. And like I said, Howie, there was no one, no one throughout those years speaking out about their abuse. There was nobody no. I could relate to. Yeah. I felt all alone with this pain. Yeah. I'm by myself in the world. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it was horrible. And some of the reactions, uh, you know, other cases we worked through the years, and we can speak about this one with him, not you part. Um, years before, there was a detective that tried to make a case against him. And um, for number of reasons it it never got through you know the at the time the, the prosecuting attorneys always didn't didn't want to move forward with it and you had told a story about 
what some of the parents said. Like, yeah, you know, you know the, they, they they came forward and then they pulled back. Right, right. You know, there there was two instances besides the one you're talking about, and then there's another instance. But there's two instances where Boy Scouts went away on weekend jamborees with Dennis Pegg and came home with hickeys all over their body. Jesus. And the parents saw them with their shirt off and they got hickeys. Like, what are those marks? And the kids told them. And... In one instance, a mother took her son to the state police, filed charges, and the next day, the father went there and recanted them and said, I don't want my son labeled as gay. Yeah. I want everybody to listen to that, okay? Because, you know, that was back a ways, but some of that still occurs today. Parents backing off, parents not wanting the stigma, parents not wanting to be involved. But I would remind them, you are the protector. Okay, a, a small boy like that doesn't have the, the, the life experience, the situational awareness or, or any of that to be their own protector at that point. And if they do come forward like these kids did and the parent turned and said that, we've seen that before where parents back up and say, no, 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 we right. as a family. I like when they say we as a family. And I, I want to look at them sometimes and grab them around the neck and say, it's not about you. Somebody's preying on your child. You have to step up and do the right thing. And they're not stopping. No. I'm not stopping with little Johnny. Oh no! Oh no! No, because that's yeah, that's the other thing. It's never one. It's always a right. It's always a group of them. But um, the um, let's go to the night of. Yeah, know, after yeah. You so, speak to your buddy. so I'm at I'm at the, I'm at the kitchen table having a glass of wine, and I blurt out right about what happened. Whether it was my buddy or myself is debatable. Who said the words? Mm. But one of us said, let's go get him. And it wasn't let's let's do A, B, C, D, E. It was let's go get him. Um, no, the words were going there. We don't know what we're going to do yet. Yeah. I tell my buddy, this guy's a gun fanatic. Right. And, and he was the, the firearms instructor for a couple counties in mm -hmm. New Jersey for law enforcement. Sure. They had to come to him to, to get certified. Right. This guy had dozens and dozens of guns at his house. We took two knives with us. One was a hunting knife that he taught me at age 10 to 12. One of his Christmas gifts to me was a knife sharpening kit, stone and oil kit. And he spent hours teaching me how to get the perfect blade on my hunting knife. And that's the same knife I took with me that night. Mm -hmm. It still had a perfect blade on it. And I went up to his house. We drove partway up his driveway. I got out. I didn't even know if this guy still lived there. You know, it's been 30 years. I go up there. He's got his front door open. His storm door is closed. And there he is sitting in his couch. And I go back to my buddy. I'm like, he's there. And we go up the driveway. We're standing in the shadows. And that old familiar feeling of paralysis starts to tighten my muscles and my breathing gets hard to breathe and my mind is like swirling so fast it's like wanting to shut down and before i go into a uh, a panic attack i uh i go up to his storm door i rip it off the hinges and it's 9 30 at night one of your childhood rape victims has just ripped open your storm door and what he said next like just set me off so bad it determined what happened 
he looks calmly over his shoulder and he goes, hey, how are you? I go, hey, how am I, motherfucker? Let me show you how the fuck I am. And I raced across this room. A violent struggle ensued. He's punching me. I'm stabbing at him. At the end of it, he lay dead. Right. Um, he slipped in the blood. I knelt down in front of him. I said to him, it's not so fun raping little boys now, is it? And I slit his throat. Yeah. And that was the end of Dennis Pegg. And I remember um, the next morning getting called there and, um, on a, a kind of a side note, I got called, I live within walking distance, literally, I mean a healthy walk, but right. a walking distance of his home. Right. I knew where it was. And I, you know, I was a, uh, I was a trooper in the New Jersey state police. I was in a crime scene investigation unit and we would do all major crimes for the, that particular County. And I remember I got called down to a County South and to go to a job. And as soon as I got all the way down, about an hour ride down, the phone rings. We just got started and I had to come back up. And I said, you know, damn it. It always happens. It's like, if I had that one more cup of coffee at home, I could have just walked up the street to work. So I had to drive all the way back. And when I walked in, I met one of the other detectives there and we walked up and he was telling me what was going on. And I walked in and I saw him. I walked right over to him on the floor. And I remember specifically what I said. I said, that's the weird guy from the diner. And um, I know I've told you this before, yeah. but he would always walk into the diner and there'd be cops at the counter and he never would engage us. Right. And I always thought that was weird. You know, there's just, there's a lot of people in this world that don't see things going on around him. Their situational awareness is shitty or just non-existent right. and they don't get it. But, and, he, and there's people in law enforcement that are way, that way too. But there's a lot of people in it that, that you see things other people don't see. Because you're always a little kind of hyper aware of what's going on. That's one of the things about him that I always remember. He never engaged anybody else. And I'm like, you know, let's, and I remember saying to the guy that owned it saying, that dude's weird. There's something wrong about him. I knew he worked as a jailer in the guard, in a jail guard in the, in the sheriff's department. And why would he never even look at us and acknowledge us? Say, Hey guys, what's up? I mean, right. theoretically, you know, we would see each other at work and you know, there's, there should be some sort of not buddies, but you just, you're a colleague. How about that? I mean, you just nod your head and say, hey, you guys busy? Hey, good. See you. Stay safe or whatever. And they leave. Nothing. He would just dart in a corner. And either he, every time I saw him, he either had a young man with him, teenager, or one would come in and meet him there. You know what I mean? So it was always kind of weird. But I remember leaning down and knowing some of the rumors about him. Right. Saying, this was somebody came for you, man. Because I looked at the house. I mean, I, we stepped in the door and you didn't have to be Dick Tracy to realize this. nobody burglarized this house. They came They came. Looking I mean, for you me. asked me one question and there was bloody footprints mm -hmm. that went from where yeah. Dennis Pegg lay over to a bedroom. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what was up with nothing that? was taken, but what's their yeah. footprints going to that bedroom? And I said, that's the room he raped me in and I spit on the bed. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. It was crazy. The uh, everybody that was there was kind of, especially some of the attorneys that were uh, outside. You know, the prosecuting attorneys. Um, they they were like, "Oh my god, this is horrible, horrible, horrible." And you know, you get very cynical in this line of work. And you know, I looked at it and go, "It's not as horrible as you think." Like, look, this was. You're all going to find out this was coming. Right. So there's there's going to be more to this story. Just on what we see here, there's going to be more. Somebody came looking for him for a reason, and I think the reason is going to reveal itself. 
and it's going to answer a lot of questions. And within a few hours, it did. Right, right. All right, right. So I want to ask you about this. When you went through the door and he triggered you, and you kind of probably already answered it with the way, with your response to him, but do you remember the rage? Do you remember like it just, just like. Well, I, 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 every time I tell that part, I know you can hear my yeah. voice. The rage starts to build up again. Yeah. You know, and the wording, you know, I, one of, one of the things in my healing process is I cut out swearing. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, when I when I do a podcast or interview or something, I I, I got to be exactly. true to what happened. Sure. Um, you know, so it was like you motherfucker. Yeah. 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 That, that rage. Yeah. yeah. Did you have the rage before in your went in the door, or was it what he said? It really set it off. Well, you know, I, I I'm standing in in the the shadows of the uh, driveway, and I'm starting to go into that panic attack, and you know, I'm like, before I completely freeze here. I got to go confront this guy, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so the rage, I had to like kick the rage into gear to rip open the, the storm door. But then just that casual, calm. Like it never happened. Yeah. Like, like we're best buddies. Like, yeah. like, like he was expecting me to come by to shoot the breeze yeah. or come by. Maybe to, you know, uh, have a sexual liaison uh, 30 years later. Let's relive, you know, yeah. what happened. I don't, they're, they're so twisted in their thinking. I, you know, who knows? But that, that calm, just shal- nonchalant attitude, you mm-hmm. know, really just like put me over, you know. He doesn't know the self-destructing I've been doing throughout my life. Right. He doesn't know the carnage he caused in my life. He doesn't know all the failures he caused. He doesn't know the 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 the, the dead end streets I've drove down because of him. The relationships that yeah, that all, up all and... the, the failed careers, the failed relationship. He's sleeping away, snoring like a baby every night. Yeah. Fast forward now. You left. You got to your home, which was your mom's yeah. right at the time. Yeah. Tell me about when they when the law enforcement showed up. Yeah, well, you know, I thought I'd have a little time to <laughs> to like organize my thoughts. Uh, uh, you know, it 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 just uh, you know, I had literally just woken up and I went out. You know, my mind said, "I'm." You know, I woke up and I'm like. Oh my God, you idiot, Clark. You idiot. You idiot. I'm digging my fingers into my skull. I'm like, you just flushed your life away. How are you? You know, like I had a serious, serious wound on my hand. I put a knife right through it. And I knew that was going to be my downfall. It's not like you can just show up at the hospital and say, stitch me up, you know, and they're not going to ask any questions or anything, you know. Um, Did you think you were going to get away? No. No, no, that injury I thought was going to be Did you have any plan of going anywhere? No, I, uh, uh, you're working I, on that. <laughs> yeah. I, my mind said, all right, all right. You know, I'm just lying there in bed, like digging my fingers in, t- telling myself what an idiot I am. And my mind said, let's just get some drugs and alcohol in us and we can come up with a plan. So I threw down a bunch of Xanax. I went out to the kitchen to get a glass of wine and I poured a glass of wine and I look out the the bay windows of the breakfast nook area and I see armed 
troopers, armed detectives running around, hiding behind trees, behind rock walls. And I'm like, and it, it, it's, it's an indescribable feeling, but it's your life's over. It's done. Like, yeah, didn't even have time to like process or come up with anything. It's just over. And uh, my stomach dropped to the ground. I chugged that wine and poured another. And, uh, you know, I was ordered out of my house, you know. And as I walked to that front door, I asked God to let one of you shoot me and put me out of my misery. I just, I'm like, God, I just want the pain I'm in to be over. Just let one of these guys shoot me when I walk out my door and let this life be done. You know, and that's that was my mindset at that that moment. Like, like it's over, man. It's yeah. done. I'm, I don't. I don't want to go spend life in prison. Let's just be done with this life I had right now. It's you know, I, I forfeit it. Yeah. yeah. So we talked in the first uh, podcast that we did together um, about you know waking up in prison and everything. You did three or four in county. Uh, I was in the county jail for three and a half years, almost to the day. Take us through the difference between county and state prison. State prison? Yeah. Um, You know, there's pros and cons. uh, And a lot of people will tell you there's more pros in prison than county. The county I came from, Sussex, there's not a lot of violent crime up here right. um a lot of drug addiction guys are in there in the county for that you go to somewhere like passaic or essex county and where all the gangs are or camden county those county jails are a living hell it's a nightmare and so can the, the problem with county is all right for one i i got this life sentence hanging over my head for three three plus years and it's it just suffocates you dude you know uh it's always there it's always strangling you you're always depressed once i got sentenced and went to state prison now you have an end date you know so there's there's that relief a little light at the time yeah the tunnel. yeah so there you know there's a relief about knowing how much longer you got to do. So you did three and a half in County. You get the final sentence. You got to do the the other year and a half in. Yeah. I I got, I got a five year sentence. You know, I, I accepted a plea deal, the second degree manslaughter and which carries five to 10. And the judge, you know, normally judges like to be the mid to upper range, especially on a case like this. But Mm -hmm. this judge Gave me the minimum, five years. And he yeah. apologized on the record for even having to send me to prison for a single day, you know, yeah. um, which is, you know, kind of, you know, miraculous in itself, you know. So uh, so I had to go, I had to go, you have to do 85% of that five years. So I had to go do a year in state prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, Do you remember the day you were transported? Yeah. You know, they, they don't give you advance notice. It was uh, crisp, Christmas eve and i'm like all right well i'm here for through the through through the holiday because they're not going to send a transport up on christmas eve or christmas day they, they sent a transport up on christmas <laughs> eve you know so i had settled my mind into i'll be here chilling through through the holiday and then boom 
the guards yell over to loudspeaker, Fredericks, pack up right now. And a guard comes in to escort me up to my cell. And uh, you're taken downstairs. You're, all I was allowed to bring was a Bible with me. And you, you have to, you know, the, when you're locked up, they like to strip you, search you a lot, you know. And that was in itself reliving of all my abuse, you know, because I was, you know, abused by a, by a jail guard. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you, you get strip searched, you get shackled, you're put into one of these these vans. They They make these vans where they slant the roof on you. So you can't like. You can't sit in the back of these vans and relax, you know. You're you're at a you're at an angle in there and it's really really uncomfortable. Um and uh you know, I had a 2 plus hour ride now to, to uh Trenton State Prison where you you go to a place called CRAF. Oh yeah. You know, uh before they assign you. Yeah, to to get a full mental evaluation, you know, figure out what prison suits you best. And craft is a hellhole, yeah. And they treat you like hell there because they want to shock you going into the prison system so that you don't want to come back. And, I, you know, guards, I, you know, I had guards, female guards threatened to beat me. And we had this one, you know, and this is... This is the power of my story. We had this one guard who watched uh, our unit every day. I was there for a week. And he was this white guard, and he was gnarly and threatened everybody with a beating and took no crap. And... On my last day there, he comes and he throws a uh, garbage bag to me. And he's like, put all your uh, stuff in this garbage bag. You're shipping out in the morning. Pack up and bring it down to my desk. So there was like five of us he gave garbage bags to. I'm, I'm the last in line. And I get up to his desk. I give him the garbage bag. And he's like, Fredericks, you mind if I ask you a question? And I'm like, go ahead, sir. What the hell did you do to get locked up? And I'm like, so I give him the the quick scenario. Raped as a boy by a corrections officer, a lieutenant nonetheless. After seeing him with another young boy 30 years later, I went and murdered him. And he puts his hands behind his head and he leans back in his chair he's like that's all right by me fredericks that's all right (laughs) (laughs) and so here this baddest guy in there who wants to kill everybody threatens to kill everybody is now like some empathy yeah and i so i say sir do you mind if i ask you a question go ahead fredericks and i'm like you didn't ask the other four guys in front of me why they were there. What made you ask me? He's like, because you're different. You don't belong here. I can see it. You're just, there's something different. Yeah. Yeah. You could see it. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, When you were in, did you get any kind of help? Any therapy? Any books? Anything? So so I'm at at craft for a week. Going 
it, you know, every time you go into one of these new environments, it's, I don't care who you are, dude, it's frightening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's unknown. Anything can happen by guards or by inmates. And it, it, it you know, uh, you can be the, the baddest ass you want to be, but I, I guarantee you every single guy is scared shitless going into that environment. Right. And I, I, don't know, I was scared shitless, you know? <laughs> I don't know how it operates. I don't know anything about it. Um, you know, you, you get checked in, and then they don't even escort you to your unit. They're like, all right, go through those doors. And you're going to C unit, and I'm like, you know, okay. I, don't, I don't, I don't know where is C unit is, you know. So I walk through the doors, and I'm going down this long path looking for C unit, and there's a big C on a on a fence, and I'm like, now how the hell do I get in? I'm standing in front of things. There is no like intercom buttons, so you're just standing there like, this can't be right, you know? <laughs> like what am yeah. I doing wrong? And then all of a sudden the gates open. I'm like. I don't know how that happened, you know, but there's guys in guard yeah, houses. watching with cameras and shit. I go in, you know, I, uh, I get assigned a cell and I'm, my first bunkie is like a militant Christian black guy. And, you know, on one hand he's preaching and then on the other hand he's saying, you touch any of my shit, I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, so it's like... Oh, uh, yeah, God's really having an effect yeah. on you, huh? Well, it's that, it's <laughs> you a different Christianity thing. I walk in, he's like, you Muslim or Christian? You know, because in, in northern state prisoners, you know, a lot of guys become Muslim because it's For like their gang and, buddies yeah. are in it yeah, and yeah. they're expected to become it. Yeah. And it's almost like a new gang being in the Muslim, in, in right. at least in that prison. And... You know, like guards, I heard guards say to, to guys, what are you doing going to Muslim prayer on Friday? <laughs> He's like, you're not Muslim. They're like, that's where I see my homies, yeah. you know? So it, and they're passing notes and, yeah. you know, whatever, doing whatever, you know? So he asked me if my Muslim or Christian, you know? And I'm like, I'm Christian. He's like, all right, me too. He goes, but you touch any of my shit, I'll kill you. You know, so... <laughs> So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I got a, I got a handful on my hands here, you know. And uh, about two hours into that, a therapist comes to my cell and introduces herself and says, I saw your case on the news, and I just saw your name come across my computer. I can't believe you're here. She's like, I'm happy you're here. Yeah, will, will you join therapy with me? And I'm like, absolutely. And this that's the first time in my life, Howie, I ever got therapy. And... Uh, after my second one-on-one -on -one with her, she asked me to join a group therapy class for childhood trauma. Not necessarily molestation, just childhood trauma. And uh, I joined that, and that was like the biggest healing thing for me. You know, I'm in there with Latin King gang members, Blood Gang members, um, and we all had to trust each other that nothing left the room. And we would share the horrors of our childhood and cry in front of each other, hug each other, and we healed together, you know. Uh, and it was uh, it was pretty incredible in that environment because you can't open up in that environment. No. You can't share anything. Guys, guys, you have to be guys are hawks, man. They, they're they out to, to con stuff out of you. And survive. Yeah.
Yeah. You know, you, you're doing 20, 30, 40 years, you know, you're, you're preying on people to sure. survive in that, yeah. you know. And uh, so it was, uh, it was pretty miraculous to, to, to heal in that environment. That is pretty miraculous from what you hear. Yeah. Tell me about the day you got out. <clears throat> Who picked you up walking out the door? So let me let me start by saying this. Like, you know, you uh, I obviously never worked in a jail. We had to bring people to jail. We I had to do crimes in jail, go investigate them. But that day when an inmate gets out, you know, you think of like movies like Shawshank Redemption, where there they are, the gate opens, this rusty old gate, they're out their little suitcase and they go to some halfway house or something like that, you know, putting their civilian clothes on for the first time in 30 Tell me about the day you got out. The morning of, or you yeah, knew about it? Yeah. Um, I, I knew I knew three days prior that I, then when, when I was getting out. Did you tell anybody? I wasn't going to, but they, over a loudspeaker, called out, uh, Fredericks, come... Uh, Get down here for your exit photo. Oh, so I'm like, ah, now they know. Yeah. You know, so, so the guys are like, "You get out! You get out!" <laughs> You're like, I don't know, maybe. You know, so yeah, they let they let the cat out of the bag with that. You know, um, I had shared it with a couple dudes. You know, and now now everybody knows. You know, so uh, uh, you know, I'm giving my clothes to one guy. You know, I'm giving coffees to another guy soups to another guy candies to another guy my tv to another guy you could have tvs in there you know uh my fan to another guy um you know so i got i'm giving everything away you know and uh so that night you know i slept a couple hours you know uh i woke up early and uh went to the bathroom that was your coffee machine. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Keep going. We'll edit that <laughs> Keep going. So I woke up. I woke up early, and uh, at like seven o'clock, they uh, the door opened, and the guard seven a.m. Yeah, around seven a.m. Door opened, and the guard said, uh, "Fredericks, let's go. You're uh, you're leaving." And uh, I already had everything packed the night before. And uh, so it's like, it's in a, like a gym bag. Like, so I just throw, I had a couple books, my Bible, and uh, that was it. The, the only clothes I was taking out were the clothes I was wearing. And Which was the, the, the stuff they gave you? Or did you have civilian yeah, clothes? I, well, brought? you could buy sweats. I had sweats and a, a sweatshirt. And, uh, um, I gave my sneakers away to a guy. So I was wearing like these Bobo plastic, uh, shoes they give you. So <laughs> that's a brand name. Clark has a business now. They're called Bobo. Bobos. <laughs> and, uh, my niece is the one who, uh, picked me up. I'm, I'm real close with my niece, Kim. And, uh, what they do though, this was a little weird. They don't let anybody onto the property of the prison. So, there's a road that, you know, runs alongside the prison. It's northern state. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, uh, I want to say like a Holiday Inn. Yeah, it was right there. I remember where Yeah. So, so she parked down by the Holiday Inn. And when you, when you walk out of the building, they get a corrections officer in a van to follow alongside you 
uh, maybe a hundred yards down the road. Is you literally walk down the road? I'm walking down the road, my bag over my shoulder. He's creeping along at five miles an hour next to me. And there's a gatehouse. There's a yeah. gatehouse there. And when you get to the other side of the gatehouse, you're off their property. He they spins around. They say anything and to that's you? It. Or? Nope. Just walk <laughs> no. into the gate. It was, like, it was just like, you know, the guy inside, you know, does your paperwork and, uh, you know. There's uh, no hugs or thanks for stopping by, Clark. Yeah. It was good having you. <laughs> yeah. Just you're out. Yeah, they just, you know, uh, send you out on your own. You and know? then she just went over and got you? How was the car ride home? Well, I know it sounds like a we instantly question, went like, to a diner to uh, get real food. Uh, um, that had to be nice. Yeah, so real food. Some greasy Jersey eggs. And yep, yep. Ham. The, the Belleville Diner uh, yeah. down there. And uh, and then I had to go instantly to uh, my parole officer's office in uh, Passaic and check in. And then from there, we went to a Kohl's department store. I had, you know, like I said, I had nothing except for what I was on me. And, uh you know, my niece took me for a shopping spree and I bought, you know. Uh, That's the everything. stuff nobody ever hears about. Yeah. And, I, and dude, I was so unsettled going into that Coles. Like, I, I didn't want to be left alone. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I had to go to a bathroom. I'm like, where's the bathroom in here? And then my niece like, oh, it's right down there. And I'm like, can you walk with me? She goes, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be left alone. So like, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it just, uh, you were institutionalized by that. Yeah, it was weird, you know, and I just, uh, I was unsettled for quite a while. You know, and I I still got certain behaviors, you know, like I I wolf my food down, you know, like you had to eat quick in in prison, and I I still have that habit of like, you know, uh, wolfing food down. I have actually sat in a diner since then and had breakfast with you and watched you. I'm like, dude, now I'm not gonna take your food, you you can eat it, man. Um, after you got out, I asked this question. Before I ask this question, let me let me let me lay a little bit of a foundation for it. When you got locked up, like within days, there were stickers on cars all around the county. Free Clark. You know, people were pissed. They yeah. they they realized what happened. They obviously knew, you know, you got arrested and they understood it, but they were also at the point like, you know, hey, that that asshole deserved it. And the the I have never, in all my years doing this, I've been doing this a long time, never seen public support like that, like within days of your arrest. Free Clark, free Clark. So what, what I'm asking is, when you got out, you got home, yeah. you tried to get back settled in. What was, your, what was the community response? Well, How you know, you I, was, I was nervous coming back to this area, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't know if people would be whispering behind my back, you know. And you're, you're unsettled just getting out of prison. Like your yeah. your reintegration is, is like you know, like I'm saying at Coles I didn't want to walk to a bathroom by myself, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so you're unsettled, and then you're worried about whispers, and uh, but there was none of that. And instead, I had one person after another like reach out to give me money to get me back on my feet, mm-hmm. you know, like. Like Chris at the diner, you know, yeah. gave me five hundred dollars. Uh, you know, this person gave me five hundred. That person gave me a thousand. That person gave me a hundred, five hundred, two hundred, a hundred. And that's you know, uh, all over the county, uh, people were doing that for me. That was and, nice. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I've done that for dudes I knew who were locked up who had to go down in prison, and I, I've given them money when they got out to them. Took yeah. them out, took them out to the Hampton Diner for breakfast, and uh, gave them money. Yeah, just to pay it back. Um, 
So, you know, that generosity allowed me to buy a car, you know, uh, when I got out and, uh, you know, uh, so that was good, you know, so that, that, that took away some of the the worries I had about, you know, what the response would be, you know, and I, and I heard when I was locked up about the free Clark campaign, you know, like, when I, when I got arrested, they put me in a suicide jail, a suicide cell. And the third day in that suicide cell, a, a guy I knew from the street who was a corrections officer came in and, uh, he's like, my man, how are you doing? And I'm like, uh, pretty shitty, bro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How's it look? <laughs> and he's like, L- listen, he goes, you got to keep your mouth shut. Don't talk to anybody. He goes, but do you know what's going on in the community? And I'm like, do they view me as a monster? He goes, are you kidding me? No. He goes, Dennis Pegg was the monster. He goes, everybody wants to know why he was walking around free. He goes, somebody started a free Clark campaign. He goes, there's already shirts and bumper stickers. There's a, there's a, a Facebook uh, page, free Clark. He goes, uh, he goes, it's picking up steam. And the, even in one of my court appearances months later, the prosecutor in the case told the judge, your honor, it's going to be hard for me to, to have a fair trial here because driving to work every morning, all I see is free Clark bumper stickers. Yeah. And I think that played a role later in your, in, you know, what they agreed to do as far as a plea, you know, they knew. And, uh, I said this in other interviews where we were, we were t- talked to, they had two sides, you know, they had to try you for what you did. Right. But they also had to try him. And, you know, in the interest of justice, this just wasn't about getting a guilty verdict on you. This was about actual justice all the way across the board. And that was a, you know, from a, uh, a prosecuting attorney standpoint, that was a dilemma, yeah. I'm sure. And he, I, you know what? I think Greg Muller was the, the attorney. I think he did a solid. I think he did the right thing in the end. And, and he and I have spoken. it could have gone you know, a lot worse. Uh, here, here I speak to the prosecutor yeah. who prosecuted me for murder. And he's like, look, dude, it, it wasn't unanimous in the office to give you a plea no. deal. People people in the office, some of them said, look, he did what he did. Let the community decide his fate. Mm-hmm. Let him go to trial. He knew. And, I think he knew it might have been a not guilty. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, um, and that wouldn't look good for them. No. And, you know, so... Uh, uh, you know, I would say, you know, Howie, as horrible as prison is... I think it was good I went there uh, to get that further experience to be able to help people. Mm. You know, had I had I never gone to prison, that's another segment I would miss out on trying to help because you know then they, then they're not really relating me, right. relating to me. You know, so and I would never have gotten in that group therapy class. You know, that was my biggest healer, and there. Something like that isn't out on the street around right. around here, at least. Yeah, you know. So that there was there was pluses and minuses to me, uh, you know, being locked up. Uh, but overall, uh, you know, I think it was I think it worked into my favor to to get all that type of experience. So after you got out, and we talked about it a little bit in the first episode, but let's talk about it again. The law, the law that was in place. When you got out, in other words, you know, you reaching out to say, oh, look, I want to, uh, you know, you were going after the change of the law. Uh, tell us about that, how that all started and, and where it went. 
Yeah. That's got, really important. I got out and uh, I might have Googled, you know, like uh, Boy Scout molestations in my county, something like that, just to see, you know, what was going on if there was other people like me. And this case in the next county over in Morris County popped up of these three scouts who had just filed against their scoutmaster. And it listed the uh, attorney and law firm that was representing them. And I reached out to the guy. And he, he said on the phone, oh, I know your case quite well. He's like, why don't you come down and see me? And uh, I went and, and saw him. We talked for a while. And he read me the law. And he's like, you have no case. He's like, the law states you have from age 18 to 20 to file a lawsuit. So if you got raped like I did at 12, plus years of grooming and molestation before that, you're not coming forward at age 18 right. to file a lawsuit. It's, so it stated 18 to 20, it's two years, or two years from the time of awareness that what happened to you is adversely affecting your life. And as he read, I go, what does that mean? And he's like, it's sort of like legalese for you're yeah. screwed. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, look, you can't say your 18th to 20 part is already long gone. And you can't say now from time of awareness, two years to file a lawsuit. So if we wanted to use your time of awareness the night of the murder, you had to have awareness then what had happened to you he goes those two years are long gone so he goes there's advocates who have been working for 15 years on getting a new law passed and they haven't gotten anywhere he goes maybe you can use your case as ammo to sway senators and assembling people into a new law he goes and i think it would help you as an outlet just to be doing something constructive and good as an advocate. He goes, I have the names of the advocates. If you want me to hook you up with them, I will. And I said, let's do it. And uh, he called right there in the office and uh, he called one of the advocates and uh, we agreed to meet back in his office two weeks later. And I went back down there two weeks later and uh, I met this guy, Fred, and, uh, and became an advocate with him and uh and i you know i had a cousin married to one of the top lobbyists in the state and once i posted something on facebook about being an advocate she told her husband and he reached out to me and said you know i'll, I'll help you out any way i can i used to be chief of staff for one of the former mayors and uh, i have all the contacts you know and uh so he set up meetings with some senators and uh one thing he did is he set up a meeting in his office with the one of the lawyers who represented the Camden Diocese of the Catholic Church. And the Camden Diocese was the most powerful diocese and had sway over all the other dioceses. Before you go into that, yeah, because this is a really important part, and I want people to really, <laughs> I want them to drill into this. So Dennis Pegg was a scoutmaster, okay? The Boy Scouts of America are under massive... Uh, litigation lawsuits now for failing to to safeguard the scouts and and even there's accusations of them hiding the sexual abuse that occurred during 
scouts. The church is another organization, much bigger organization, that has been involved in a well-documented, well-publicized child abuse scandal, and they have been sued successfully many times over them basically just repositioning these priests in different cities and never really doing it. So you now are involved in this thing and you run into an attorney for the archdiocese and go through what he says, because this blows my mind. And why, all right, you know, like I wanted to file a lawsuit against the Boy Scouts. I couldn't do it. I became an advocate, not only to help other abuse victims, but to also help myself. It was a grassroots effort. And, uh, the Boy Scouts weren't holding up the law. The Catholic Church was holding up the law. Yeah, they're very powerful. And at every hearing on the law, the organization that was there was the Catholic Coalition, their attorneys uh, protesting the changing of the law. And that was powerful. Like they would stand up and get to speak at every hearing on this law and just say what a horrible law it was, the damage it would cause to parochial schools that your children go to and love, that do so much good for the community. And these Congress people, senators and assembly people who are Catholic hear that and they're like, they're not going to take my little Johnny's parochial school away. Right. And you the know? Catholic school is also kicking into campaigns on the QT. They're dumping a lot of money into it. Yeah. So it's it's a very powerful So it, it was the Catholic church holding yeah. up the law. Yeah. So we had to win over the Catholic church. What did he say? So we, we meet with the lawyer representing the, the candid diocese at my, you know, my cousin's uh, lobby firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he starts off the meeting by saying, all right, gentlemen. Before we even begin, we can't even have a discussion until you remove the two-year open window you want. Now, what we wanted with the law was we wanted the law to go up to age 55 for abuse victims to be able to come forward. You know, it was 18 to 20, up to 55. And we wanted a two-year open window so that when the law got signed into place, a two-year clock started ticking, and anybody, no matter how old they were or how old their case was, could come forward in that two-year window. And that's what the Catholic Church didn't want, because they just figured that would just open up Pandora's box to too many lawsuits. To all the shit they've been hiding. Yeah, well, t- well tough shit, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. If you, if you want to make amends, let's make amends. Yeah, you got to do it. Gotta... Let's not sugarcoat it. Sure. So he starts off... We can't even have a discussion until you guys remove that two-year open window. So just to feel them out, I say, all right, how about a one-year open window? And and he was very condescending, and he tiss-tissed me. And he's like, oh, Clark, 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 Clark. Listen to me carefully, gentlemen. You will never get a two-year open window passed in New Jersey. You won't get a one-year window passed in New Jersey. You won't even get a one-day window passed in New Jersey. He goes, so you have to just remove that from your thought process. How cocky. <laughs> like, really, I mean, what an attitude. It's like, it's, like, it's like, Clark, you don't understand. I already bought and paid for everybody. This shit isn't going to happen. 
<laughs> so me and Fred were like, there's re- no reason to even waste our time, you know, waste any of our times, you know, it was nice meeting you. And he's like, oh, sit, 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 sit. Let's, let's talk at least. Well, what happened right after that meeting was that the state of Pennsylvania had been doing an investigation for years into their Catholic church scandals. Right. And the attorney general released a report and it was horrific. It was, it, it was unbelievable. And after their report, our attorney general said, we're going to begin our own investigation. <laughs> so now everything turned on a dime and within a few months after Pennsylvania's report, we finally got a, a we couldn't even get the law to come up for a vote. Yeah. Senator Sweeney kept blot. He was the president and he had control over what laws came up for vote or not. And he was shooting it down. Yeah. That's important to, to yeah. know. I think people should know that. And uh, so now he allowed it to go forward. And uh, yeah, well, that's because he was put in a corner. Yeah, and and I went to his office, you know, me and the other advocates. He was too busy that day to meet with us, but his deputy met with us, and we shared our, all our stories with him. And, uh, you know, and he's, he, the deputy, you know, he, he talked a good game with us. He's like, I guarantee, I swear to you, Senator Sweeney will hear all of these stories, and we'll get back to you. Senator Sweeney to his credit, finally allowed the law to come forward, mm. you know, for vote. Right, let it go up to a vote. Yep. And, uh, uh... Well, hold on. Let's just stop first, because yeah. before we pat him on the back... Right, right. Well, uh, yeah, and for 15 years, he blocked yeah. it, so... Pennsylvania <laughs> put their nuts in a vice. Yeah. And they were kind of stuck in a spot where, politically, look, we got to do something, because if our AG does an open investigation, we're going to look like shit. So... Let it now, now let the chips fall where they may. Tell the Catholic Church, look, sorry, this went too far now. It's gonna, this is gonna come out. Yeah, I mean, it was like hundreds of priests in Pennsylvania, yeah. thousands of victims. You know, the, the shocking thing of this all is that New Jersey gets their law passed. Pennsylvania still hasn't passed their law. Yeah. Like the Catholic Church still has that much control over these oh. senators in Pennsylvania that the law still hasn't got passed. Yeah. Yeah. So so our law goes forward, it's a unanimous vote. You have to get voted on four different times to get a a, a law passed. Mm-hmm. I was in Trenton for all four votes and the law got gets passed unanimously. How did that feel? Uh yeah, That's a big was, deal, dude. That's yeah, it was a big deal, and, and you know, now I got to testify before uh, the House Judicial Committee, you know, and it was an all-day affair. It was exhausting, and you you got five. Each person got five minutes to speak, and these advocates are so pained. They're carrying so much hurt. They couldn't keep it within that five minutes. They mm-hmm. just wanted to go and go and go and go and go. And one after another is getting their mic shut off, and that you know you're starting to lose the senators. Like you, 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 you're they they know your pain, but they're also like you have to stay within these guide, you know, within this time frame. And I said to the to the girl Val who I went with, I'm like, and she had pages and pages and pages. I'm like Val, you can't read that. I like just get up just and- condensed it. 
and I, I, I went up there and I condensed mine to like a minute and a half. And, and I, I punched him in the gut. I told him about waking up in a suicide cell. I told him about murdering my abuser. And I told them that if they don't pass this law, they got blood on their hands because there's hundreds it's of other Clarks, again. hundreds of other Clarks waiting to do the same thing I did because they don't feel they have any recourse against their abusers. Mm-hmm. And I go, you have, to, you have to pass this law. And I heard through the grapevine how powerful that yeah. testimony was. And it, and it was a minute and a half. Boom, I'm done. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, at the end of the day, it was a unanimous vote. And That's a bold it, it was move. pretty awesome. Well, it's nice, too, that you were able to condense it and say that. I also think it's nice that you told them, look, the blood is on your hands because they're going to do what I did. Not, it wasn't like a story from, I don't, I don't, I'm not downplaying any victim, but some of these victims are victims and never did anything like you did, obviously. Right. So to hear from somebody who said, look, dude, I took it to the, I took it to the place it can't go. Right. And there's going to be more of this. And you better realize that because when it happens again, look at yourself in the mirror because you didn't do shit here right. and this had to be fixed. So yeah. And, and, you know, and I've said that like, you know, like Howie, I get hundreds, maybe thousands of people you know, sending me private messages about mm-hmm. their abuse. And they all say, all right, I've had two people who've said they could never do what I did. Every other person, male, female, liberal, conservative, has said, I've dreamt, I've fantasized, I've thought for years about doing what you did. And look, we can't have a civilized society if every abuse victim's running around slitting the throat of their abuser. I get that. And I and I I've I've urged every single person away from following my footsteps. That's why I, that's why I became a, a speaker, motivational mm-hmm. speaker, was so that nobody followed in my footsteps. Yeah, you know, because because one, your abuser now is controlling you. If you know, like Dennis Pegg had control of me for me going to prison, like his pain, the pain he inflicted upon me was so great that. I, I did something that caused me to go to prison. So he's actually controlling me going to prison. Yeah. And I said, it's, you, can't, you can't go spend your life in prison because your abuse are still controlling you. Yeah. I'm like, so you have to begin, you have to find ways to heal. You know, and, uh, you know, so uh, it was, uh, you know, I told, I told before the House Judicial Committee about everybody's reaction, abuse victims' reaction to what I did is that they want to do the same thing. And I said, if you don't pass this law, there's going to be some of them who really? are going to act on that. Yeah. And I said, so yeah, you have to ad- uh, adopt a new law. I think one of the things that I found uh, probably so impressive about you, and and you know, full disclosure, and I said it in the first time we spoke on, on, uh, on the podcast, I knew your brother. Yeah. I had gone fishing with your brother through mutual friends and I ne- I didn't know you. No. Um, but my first day meeting you was standing in a jail cell and you were, you know, a, you were a mess, man. You were bleeding. You were hurt. You were standing there. You knew your life was a train wreck right at that point and you knew where it was going. And I kind of had, I no, I, not kind of, I had empathy. I understand. You know, I, if you remember what I said to you, I go, is this, did this happen once or was this a long going thing? And you just looked down and you said, this was over years. And right there, it just hit me. I went, man, we, we, we sucked. 
we didn't get this done. We didn't stop this from happening. And what a lot of people think about uh, law enforcement is what they hear about in the media. And the media does a really shitty job of portraying law enforcement. One of the first tenets of law enforcement is preventing crime, not just going after somebody after they commit a crime. Yeah, we got to do that too. But the prevention of crime. And I look at this and the crime here was him and all that he did and the path of destruction he left behind him. I'll just fill people in. I know we said it before, but there have been many, several suicides of victims of Dennis Pegg that have took their own life, family members of him that have killed themselves. Others that came forward during your trial as a character reference to you and saying, look, he did it to me too. There was quite a list of people that came forward and talked about what he did. And it really started to uh, come into focus in the community that, oh my God, man, we had an animal living amongst us. I mean, we had a, we had a, we had a predator and this predator was preying on our children. And if that shit isn't a wake up call to parents about what's really out there today, I don't know what is, but I didn't know you. And I met you that day. And the funny thing is that was the last time I saw you right. until you got out right. and, and you were working at a restaurant and, uh, you, <laughs> I was sitting, having lunch and you walked behind me. You look by the way, totally different. Like you were cleaned up in shape, getting your shit back together. But there was something I recognized about you. And you, and again, it was out of the peripheral vision and you walked by and I remember saying to the bartender, Shannon, I said, who is that? And she said, it's Clark Fredericks. And you walked into the kitchen and I said to her, Hey man, could you do me a favor? Could you go ask him to come out? Tell him a couple guys from the state police want to talk to him. And I remember her, <laughs> she looked like, oh hell no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. She knew me. I'm like, no, no, no. I just want to say hi, man. I haven't seen him, you know? And you came out and it kind of, uh, it kind of reconnected like, the, the moment that we had in the jail yeah. so where we talked and we right. we kind of just laughed and you know shook hands and we 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 bullshit i asked what you're doing and what i want to do is tell a little bit of a story about you um which i think you know it goes it's it's in addition to uh the efforts you have given to help other people that have gone through the same thing you did <clears throat> i did not go through that however um, you know, after you got out, we got to become friends. We went and had breakfast. We spoke at a, several engagements together. Yeah. Um, we did the first episode of the podcast together. Um, and, uh, I really got a chance to see your effort in trying to do something about this problem in society, the changing of the law, the getting up, the being willing to speak to other people who have been victimized the way you were. Your message was as clear from the first day I saw you spoke about it to it is right now. Don't do what I did. Right. There's another way. Your silence being your enemy. You got to seek therapy. You got to seek help. Um, and I was like, wow, you know what? He's really, God, man, he's like the poster child for taking the turn in the right direction, doing the right thing. Um, so we became friends and we still are today. And um, uh, I guess it was a year and a half ago. Um, it's it's funny. You, uh, you realize sometimes... Uh, who your friends are and who, uh, I think now I know where you're going with this story. It's, and it's, it's pretty awesome. It's amazing actually.
Well, when you're, uh, sometimes you get stupidly emotional talking about it. But you, when, you know, I, I can tell my story a hundred times fine, and then a hundred and one. You know, something grabs me. It does. Like, and something's grabbing you right now. I, uh, it's fine, man. It's, we're human. It still shows we got our uh, humanity left. It does. Yeah. And sometimes things happen in your life that come out of nowhere, you know? Like a uh, year and a half ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I had a little girl, uh, young wife. Everything was good. You go in and get a, a medical treatment, a colonoscopy. And the next thing you know, you wake up, you're trying to shake off the anesthesia, and they tell you, you have cancer. And it is like, man, somebody just dropped a freaking piano on your head. And uh, you don't know where you're going. You know, you don't, you don't have, you know, there's a pocket of time between you get the diagnosis and you go see your next doctors where nobody tells you shit. You're just like, is this it? Right. Am I, this is how I'm going? All the stupid, crazy shit I did in my life, right? right. And, and this is how it's going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, as it, as it unfolded, I had to go through chemo. I had to go through radiation. I had to go through some surgeries, which are a nightmare. They removed part of my insides, which has been another nightmare. <clears throat> but I, I, the reason I'm telling this story is not to talk about me. It's to say, you know, uh, <laughs> I do my job and I stick a guy in jail. He does his time in jail. He goes through Everything he went through, he gets out. The guy that sticks him in jail gets sick. And you called me every week. Well, I, you know, before I called you every week, you reached out to me and you're like, but I got a favor to ask of you. And I'm like, yeah, anything, bro. And I had no idea what was coming. And you're like, uh, you're like the uh, fourth person I'm reaching out to. He's like, uh, I've been diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, oh, bro. And you're like, uh, I got a favor to ask you. Will you pray for me? He goes, you said something's happened with you. God has given you the strength to get through everything you got through. And I think you have a direct pipeline to the guy upstairs. And uh, I could use your prayers. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, absolutely, bro. And then we had a little laugh. I'm like, you realize you put me in prison, right? You, you realize you played a part in my arrest and my incarceration. And you got the balls now to ask me to pray for you? I did. As I dialed the phone, I'm like, he's probably going to tell me to go fuck <laughs> I did, though, man. I was like, you know what, man? It's, I'm like, oh, this is awesome, Hallie. I'm like, I'm honored to do that for you. I was you. like, shit, yeah. man. If anybody I know that the guy upstairs has listened to, it's him. I got it. Yeah, yeah. So I did. and and uh, But, um, you know, and you know, and you know, I I've heard that from a lot of other people. You know, like you know, could you pray for me? You know, there's there's something with you, with your story, with your case, with you turning your life around with God. Uh, that you know, I you know, I, I I've had you know my party buddies come see me speak at the Lafayette House we did together, mm -hmm. and uh, 
one of my uh, big party buddies, he's like, yeah, it's kind of, he goes, I never believed in God. He goes, but after hearing your story, it's, it's kind of hard not to, bro. <laughs> you know? and, so. and you know, when you ask somebody to pray for you, you say to yourself, do I even deserve to, to, to ask this? Like, if I have to ask somebody to do this, maybe I wasn't good enough as maybe in my faith. You know, you, you start to question your own faith and you start to question all the other stuff. And I've never been like a super religious guy. Right. I always believed I was born and raised, you know, Catholic. And, and, and you know, when you're faced with that moment of, uh, of being, you're not, not knowing, you're like, fuck shit, what do I do? You know, and uh, I, I did. I picked the phone up. I did exactly that, man. I asked you to, uh, you know, to pray for me. And my point of telling the story is not, you know, to let everybody know about my, my baggage is to say like, look, man, with everything he did, and everything he went through, um, I'm the guy that stuck him in a jail cell. And then I get afflicted with this horrible disease, which knock on wood, I made it through. But uh, you checked on me every week. Dude, you called me all the time. When's your appointment? When are you going back for chemo? Do you need a ride? Do you need anything? Uh, when you're feeling better, if you want to go to the gym, let me know. We'll do this. We'll do that. And I thought, you know, there's so many people, and I'm not talking ill of anybody else. But there's so many people in my life that I have been very close to that never called. And I don't hold that against them. That's not my point in saying this. I don't hold it against them. Life is busy. But it says a lot about you um, and who you really, truly are that you look at and say, look, this is a person I could easily write off in my life, meaning me, who, who, who put me in a place that I never wanted to be. And he's reaching out to me. And you man, you never even batted an eye. You said yes immediately. And then you checked on me every week. And yeah. that, was a, that was a big thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, I was honored, you know, uh, that you would share that type of story with yeah. me, you know? Um, and, and it may, it may be, you know, you were looking for a little, uh, strength, you know? Oh, there's <laughs> yeah. You know, Dude, I, there's no doubt I had, you know, something, something similar. Like I had, an elderly bank manager of where I went to the bank and she was retiring on a Friday on a Wednesday. We got a heavy snowstorm and her husband went out to shovel the driveway. This is like textbook and had a massive heart attack shoveling the driveway and dropped dead. And she, this bank manager is another one who gave me money when I got out to get me back on my feet, you know? And, uh, and we had kept in touch, you know, and she just thought everything I'd been through was amazing that I came out of it and that I'm not a blithering idiot, you know, uh, drinking and doing drugs or whatever, you know, that I'm helping people. And, uh, and she called me up after her, her husband's death and she said, Clark, can you meet me? And we went to the diner, Chris's diner. She's like, can you meet me for a bite to eat? I need to absorb some of your strength to get yeah. me through this. And I was like. Of course, Linda. You yeah. Know? And uh, people I met, don't get I that. Met, sometimes. I met her and just talked to her and just, uh, you know, gave her, uh, you know, uh, a little pep talk. And well, to get her sometimes you, get, you, you have to deal with people that have had adverse, adversity and okay. been through the shit. And uh, that's why a lot of the military and law enforcement people kind of stick together and they stay in that group because they, they deal with the same things and they, they kind of reach out to each other. I don't know if it actually works or I, maybe it can be counterproductive sometimes, but going back to what you said earlier about when you, you know, the drugs and everything. And I said, I'll bring it around. Yeah. When I was going through the surgeries and you got to remember, man, I've never been in a hospital in my life. 
as a patient, never. Right. I had never had anything wrong. So this was like, you know, I went from zero to 60, like in one shot. And as I'm coming out, the doctors are talking to me about like, like the anesthesia is going to wear off this and that. So we're going to prescribe this and this and this. And I remember looking at the, the doctor and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to write you a script for Oxy and for this. And I just put my hand up and no, he says, what do you mean? No. He says, this is going to hurt when this starts this shit wears off. I mean, you know, he cut, I cut, I removed half your insides. I did this. You had a stoma. You had a bag for months. We're going to reconnect you. This is like, he goes, I don't think you understand what the pain inside is going to be. And I remembered you. <laughs> I shit you not, man. I remembered, I remember what you're saying, how, man, it draws you in. I went, oh, you're not giving me that shit. I'm not taking it. Wow. And he says, I'm going to give you five tablets. It's an emergency thing. If you I said, you know what? I, I'm not going to take it. And I remember because of E. Clark Fredericks. I <laughs> I literally did the entire recovery process on fucking Tylenol. Wow. <laughs> that was you. But I swear to God, I was like, I'm not taking this. I'm not taking this. I'm not taking this. And he told me, he goes, how do you feel one day? I just right when I was about to get out of the hospital, I go, man, I feel great. He goes, yeah, that honeymoon's going to end tomorrow. I said, what right. do you mean? He goes, well, you're still got all the nerve blockers from surgery. And, and you still have this and that. You feel fine. You can get up and walk around. Tomorrow, you're not going to. He says, that's why I'm giving you this. I said, I'm telling you right now. And I'm one of those people. You tell me I can't do it, watch. Right, right. Hold my beer. Yeah. And he gave me the shit. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm taking this. I'll flush this shit down the toilet before I'll take it. Right. I, will take, I will take over the counter, aspirin, whatever the hell you're, I'm allowed to take that's over the counter. And I will not do it. And I swear to God, I laid in that hospital, Morristown Hospital, in my bed. And I went... No, that's the shit Clark mentioned, man. <laughs> that's what I will do. Um, and I got mine from my doctor the first time. <laughs> yeah, you know? I said, I'm not doing it. And you hear stories about pain, you know, yeah, pain absolutely. plans and pain uh, pain management shit that went wrong. But so, look, man, I, I, uh, I yeah, as we started this, I didn't know whether I was going to, uh, you know, share that story with you. But I wanted you to know that. And I want yeah. everybody to know, like, look, everybody can look back at what happened to him and what he did ultimately. What you really should be focusing on in the story of Clark Fredericks is what he's doing now. Don't ever, don't ever, you know, ignore the path that he took to get where he is. But man, where you are now is, uh, is the kind of thing that the public needs to know. And they need to know the power of prayer, the power of making the right decisions, helping other people. You're doing all of those things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just think it's it's really an unbelievable story, man. And I thank you for coming in. I'm proud you know, to call you. You know, I, I've been trying to get a book deal, you know, throughout yeah. this whole process. And, and the publishing houses, they, like you're saying, the real story is what I've done since mm -hmm. and and who I've become. They get stuck on, on molestation murder. Right. How am I going to mass market molestation murder, molestation murder? They, and they all say it. And it's just, that's... That's a, just a small part of the story, you know, being able to, to rebound from your low mm -hmm. and, and make a Bounce new back. life for you, you know? You know, that when they say, how do we market that? I'm not a marketing person. I'm not a publisher. But the answer to me is easy because if I was looking at books and I saw that background, that's the shit I'd want to read. Right. I want to, I, I need to know where you went to find, to appreciate where you are now. I, I, I know. And, and the other thing <laughs> you have to realize is this shit is real. It's happening everywhere. Don't run away from it and shame on them because when they run from it, in a way they perpetuate the problems. Get it out there. Grow a, they should grow a set and just say, you know what, man, I'm going to do your story big time. And that's, 
man, that's it has to be put out. So and, you know, you know, and one thing I you know I wanted to to share with you, you know, before we ended, you know, about where my life is, yeah. you know, coming full circle. You know, yeah, I do motivational speaking. You know, COVID shut it down pretty much. Um, you know, trying to get a book published, just helping people online almost every day. And recently, I, I just had my first interview with, with a company um, called Resilient Minds. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, the former deputy attorney general for New Jersey, him and two other people in law enforcement, you know, formed this company. And uh, this husband and wife, you know, uh, were the founders and uh, he's the CEO. And it's to treat, it started off to treat PTSD in law enforcement you know like all you guys suffer from it you, know, mm -hmm. you, you can't see you can't see crap for for 25 years and not have you know a, a layer of filth build up on you sure you know so he started this company to uh to treat law enforcement ptsd it, it's morphing into other groups that suffer from ptsd and i just someone who I'm friends with, ex-law enforcement. Okay. Someone I'm friends with, ex-law enforcement, uh, just took their three-day course training on PTSD to become, you know, one of their their speaker facilitators. And he said, you know, uh, Clark, I, I think you would be perfect for this. And uh, he goes, do you mind if I share your name with the uh, deputy AG? And I said, no, man. I said, I would love to do it. So I had my first phone interview with him. I've got another interview tomorrow with the him and the, uh, the two founders. And I just have to like pinch myself that should I go do this? Think about it. <laughs> Just think about this. I could be traveling the country to law enforcement uh, groups all around the country, helping them heal from their PTSD. Yeah. And here, I, I, I'm a guy who murdered a person in law enforcement, suffered with PTSD my whole life, went to prison, and now I would get a chance to help the, the group that put me in prison, yeah, let's yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. I could help them heal from uh, PTSD, and I think it's just uh, I think it's utterly amazing. It is, and I think it's a great thing because speaking on behalf of that profession, there's a lot of us that have it, and yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that we compartmentalize. And I think when you get them, you get in front of the right group. I mean, it is what it is, and you get so you, get so you, you got up. a large law enforcement following across the U.S. So we do. Have them reach out to resilient minds I and will. say, we want Clark Fredericks to come speak. <laughs> I will. I mean, and you, also, awesome. and you also do, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with you and I got to be honest with you, everybody listening to this. When I, the first time we did this, he's like, Hey, would you go speak with me? I'm like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. How's he going to tell the story? I actually on the stage with him sat and listened to what he said. And I was like, wow, uh, it is a, is it, it is an extremely powerful speech. It is very, very well done. Um, so from schools to parents to government agencies to corporate America, I, I would urge anybody out there, that anybody that's looking for a motivational speaker or somebody to come in and just talk about uh, resiliency, to talk about you know the, the, the tough road back, positive thinking, um, 
and how and howie before before covid hit um i had three law enforcement speeches lined up the the women new jersey women of law enforcement were having their annual convention and uh the theme that year was the warrior mindset right and they reached out to me to be the only male they've ever had as a speaker because they thought I had the warrior mindset. Yeah. Then uh, you had hooked me up with the New Jersey Crime Lab Association Mm -hmm. for their annual convention, and I had agreed to do that. And then the uh, state of Pennsylvania Department of Probation um, had reached out for me to be their uh, keynote speaker at their annual convention. Yeah. And uh, all three of those things got uh, postponed. COVID. This yeah. summer, you know, we were supposed to do, you and I, uh, uh, the, the Pennsylvania one. We'll see if that happens. Um, well, I would urge anybody out there that is looking for a speaker, for your office, for your company, for your employees, motivate them, listen to a story that will inspire them to reach out. And where would they reach out to you? Well, yeah. I have a website, ClarkFredericks.com. And yeah. uh, you can, uh, you know, reach out right through there. Um I signed, I signed up with a new uh, talent agency uh, out of Los Angeles, Let's Engage mm-hmm. Talent Agency. Um, you know, you can go through that, you, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to avoid the the, um, the hassle of that. Not that, that not, not the hassle, but, you know, if you don't want to pay the, f- the fee for them, you can just reach out directly to my website. Sure. Um, and then, and, you know, and then uh, people, uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of your uh, listeners have followed me on uh, Facebook and mm-hmm. Instagram and said, I, I, you know, I'm in law enforcement. And I, I heard you and Howie do a podcast and yeah. I think it's amazing, you know, so you can follow me on uh, Instagram or uh, Facebook. It's just under my name, Clark Fredericks. All right, man. Well, listen, bud, as usual, thanks again for coming in. And uh, I really appreciate it. I think this is a message that's got to get out to people. I don't think anybody does it better than you. And uh, thanks again. Uh, My pleasure, bro. Peace.